Good evening. Welcome back to the third in this wonderful series of lectures that Andy Knoll has been giving us. Uh, I'm Simon Levin, Chair of the Public Lectures Committee, and I wanted to uh, use this opportunity to call your attention, most of you have picked up this sheet, though, to the fact that there are uh, a, a number of upcoming lectures in the Public Lecture Series, in particular, Lech Valenza, who uh, will be speaking um, as part of the uh, Class of 2000's Millennium Project with the joint sponsorship of the Public Lectures Committee, will be lecturing this Friday at 3.30, uh, right here in Makash 50. And then uh, next week, on October 13th, uh, our own Alan Blinder will be lecturing on Life Imitates Art, How the Economy Came to Resemble the Economist's Model. Uh, from the viewpoint of an economist. So uh, uh, th this sheet also includes a number of other lectures, both this fall and in the spring. It's not complete in terms of the spring lectures. There isn't room yet on the page. Uh, but if you want to find, and in part, it's because if you want to find out what the rest of the lectures are, you have to come to some in between. That's why we do it that way. So it's my uh, pleasure tonight to introduce my uh, colleague, Laura Landweber, from the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, who will do the honors tonight. Laura. Well, thank you. For me, it's especially nice to be introducing Professor Andrew Knoll uh, for the third of his talks in this lecture series. Um, I had the fun privilege of taking a course with him, which he tells me was only offered once, but offered once nine years ago when I was a first-year graduate student in his, uh, his neighboring department at Harvard on the early evolution of life. And I have to say that course was tremendously fun. It was like um, having these lectures, but uh, maybe three times a week on a regular basis. And I found actually that despite its billing as a biology course, it turned out to me to be more a language, foreign language type of course. It was my first real introduction to geology. I learned that geologists would cleverly invent terms for things they didn't know and call themselves like acrotarchs, words that he's tried carefully to avoid in these lectures. And those are words reserved specifically for a lot of discoveries that really couldn't be placed in any actual background. And so it's a rather clever disguise, it seems to me. Um, and also during the course of, of that class at Harvard, um, it really led to my own um, desire to work in this field. And in fact, I think the paper that I wrote in that, final, in that course for my final paper turned out to be what I would work on for the next three plus years and became my PhD thesis. So I'm delighted to invite Andy back here tonight to talk about uh, the Cambrian Explosion, Proterozoic Fuse, the Early Evolution of Animals, or a talk which I would subtitle Lions and Sponges and Coanoflagellates, oh my. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you very much, Laura. I, I, it must have been very hard to come from a jargon-free discipline like biology and take a course. <laughs> I, I think with that, let's go right to the slides. And we are going to begin where my first lecture began, and that is with this wonderful cliff along the Katawikan River in northern Siberia, in which the fossils that are found as one scales this cliff sequentially really, as well as anywhere in the world, document the unfolding of animal life known as the Cambrian explosion. But now, when we come back to it, 
we can view this not as the beginning of life, but really as the product of at least three billion years of prior evolution. And we can actually go back and think a little bit more about Darwin. You'll remember that uh, I noted poor Darwin's dilemma with this sort of record as it existed in 1859. And that was that he thought that given the complexity and abundance and even diversity of animal life in the lowermost Cambrian beds that were known to him at that time, that there had to have been a long antecedent period of evolution. So I think Darwin would have been very pleased by the observations that have been gleaned in the last few decades that life does have a much longer history. But in fact, I think he would have been very disquieted by the nature of that record. Because when Darwin talked about these much more ancient times in which there would have been life swarming through the oceans, what he really had in mind was early animals. His view was really that the evolution of animals that led up to the complexity embodied in, let's say, a trilobite would have taken an extremely long time to assemble. So while he would have been happy to know that life itself has a three billion year history before the Cambrian explosion, I think it would have been very discomforting to him to find out that the antecedent record of animal life is in fact very short. And so what I'd like to do in this last lecture is talk a little bit about this pattern. In a sense, it is the final culminating addition of diversity to the Precambrian world that I've tried to assemble over the last two nights. We begin with a diversification of anaerobic, micro prokaryotic microbes, those bacteria and archaea, more than likely powered by chemical energy rather than the energy of the sun. We layer onto that photo-driven metabolisms. We layer onto that ways of making a living that use oxygen. We then layer on top of that as yet another story in the, in the complexification of ecosystems, if you will, single-celled eukaryotes which can eat other cells, which can be photosynthetic and, and add to the complexity of the system once more. And finally, near the end of the Precambrian, we introduce the complex multicellular systems of animals, which again are in a sense totally unnecessary to the functioning of the Earth as a biological planet. But once they evolve, very much change and, and uh, augment the nature of ecosystems. And what we'd like to know, we would like to understand what kind of events, what kind of biological events, what kind of environmental events, either singly or in combination, could have led to this rather dramatic unfurling of animal diversity that we see in these beds. So to do that, we really have to start a little bit before the Cambrian explosion itself. And we really want to start in the Ediacaran Hills in South Australia. Now, I've chosen this in some ways rather uninformative picture because it's my metaphor for the dawn of animal life. Uh, in daylight, it really doesn't look this good, as it turns out. Here, in about 1945, a geologist named Reg Sprigg found in sandstones that lay stratigraphically beneath 
the oldest Cambrian rocks, a series of fossils like this. And Martin Glesner, a great Australian uh, paleontologist of that era, recognized that these were not simply a downward continuation of the Cambrian fossils that were known from younger beds, but in fact were an earlier record and distinct record of animal life, usually called the Ediacaran fauna after this set of hills. That um, Ediacaran type fossil assemblages are now known from about 30 places on all continents except I think Antarctica, and wherever they're found, they have many structural units and elements in common. The first thing that one notices about the Ediacaran fauna, most of which is uh, really the impressions of unskeletonized organisms on uh, sandstones, usually fine-grained sandstones, the first thing that you notice is that a majority of the individual fossils of Ediacaran assemblages and a clear majority of the different types of fossils, the different taxa in Ediacaran assemblages are in fact radially symmetrical. Now when these were first found, uh, many of them were uh, essentially interpreted as fossilized jellyfish. You can see where one would be tempted to do that. The problem with that interpretation is that you're really looking at the bottom of a bed here, not the top. So rather than being something like a jellyfish that settled down on the seafloor, this is a type of fossil that's more likely to be made by something like a sea anemone, or think of a coral without a skeleton, that was actually nestled into the sediment. So you're really seeing the bottom of uh, an organism like this. Here you can see some rocks from uh, the Ukraine of about the same age. And uh, there are whole bedding plains that are just covered by the sort of nestled bottoms of these sea anemone-like creatures, extremely abundant um, and with a moderate diversity. Here's just one more example showing some of the complexity that you can get uh, in some of these radially symmetric forms. Now, most of these are in fact interpreted, and I think by and large interpreted correctly, as extinct organisms whose closest relatives in terms of the structural and anatomical developmental complexity are members of a phylum called the Nidaria. And the Nidaria is a phylum that includes the jellyfish, the sea anemones, the corals, and, and their relatives. These are very simple organisms. They have only two uh, distinct germ layers during their early embryology, as opposed to the three layers that we and most um, other organ animals have. They tend to be radially symmetrical, as opposed to most other animals that you can think of that are bilaterally symmetrical, like ourselves. Uh, Nadarians do have distinct tissues that is, they have nerve nets and muscle nets and things like that, but they really don't have well-developed organ systems. They don't have a well-developed um, digestive uh, organ tract. They don't have a well-developed circulatory tract, although they have muscle fibers in groups that function for some limited uh, type of movement. They don't have the well-coordinated uh, muscle systems that we see in other organisms. So in a sense, along with sponges, 
which are an even simpler level of, of organization, one might predict that this kind of biology would be among the earliest records of animal biology. Now, while many of these organisms probably are sea anemone-like things, others appear to be holdfasts, that is, bulbous holdfasts that were embedded in the sediment and from which arose stalked organisms. And we know that from, this is a bedding uh, plane on one of these rocks in Australia. You can see a little bit of a holdfast right here. And although you can't prove it from this particular bed, uh, arising from these holdfasts were these feather-like structures. Uh, here you can see a, a medial stalk, if you will, with veins uh, going from that. And again, these can be interpreted in terms of a reasonably similarly organized modern analog, which is this. This is a modern C pen. You can see it has an inflated holdfast. It has a stalk. It has these side veins. And in fact, this is not an individual organism, but a colony. Um, as some of you, but perhaps not all of you, may know, uh, within the Nidaria, complexity in organismic form is achieved by having colonies in which different individuals uh, are specialized for different purposes. A good example is the Portuguese man-o-war, which is a colony, a Nidarian colony, in which one individual is specialized for a float. Other individuals are specialized for feeding or protection or reproduction. So that's an important thing to think about, that complexity within the Nidarian branch of animal evolution is commonly achieved by colonial organization, of which this is one example. Now, it turns out that although most individuals in the Ediacaran faunas uh, have this radially symmetric organization, the organisms that get the most attention, the, the poster children, if you will, for the Ediacaran, are things like this. This is something called Dickinsonia. They're, they're really fascinating structures which are actually made of little tubular units. In, in a sense, this has a, almost a quilted or almost a pneumatic type of, of organization. There's a middle stipe. And from that, there is this highly regular series of tubular units. These uh, organisms, or organisms with this, this organization, can be as small as a dime or as large as a turkey platter but they always have the same organization and they are never more than a few millimeters thick. So they're really just spreading out as a, as a surface. There are other organisms with broadly similar uh, organization. Uh, this, for example, comes from the White Sea in northern Russia, where some of the most diverse assemblages of these organisms have been found. And when you first look at this, you say, well, that, that reminds me of a sea pen. That is, we have one vein here that has a series of these tubular-like units, and here's another one. Maybe it's a little like a C-pen. What you can't see is the third dimension here, and if you could, you would find that there was a third vein coming out in the third dimension. So think of this as being a shaft like a feather, but with three veins rather than two. Again, the fundamental structural unit appears to be these tubular-like individual units. And then they become even more complex. Here's another one from the White Sea where there are a more complex 
morphological um, construction based again on these tubular units. Well, there's been a lot of discussion and argument over the years as to what those are. It's very difficult to really be certain. Uh, they, their features simply do not map easily onto the morphology of living animals. And therefore, they become almost something of a paleontological Rorschach test. Different people will see in them different features. Canonically, for many years, uh, most of these organisms were considered to be probable early examples of groups of animals that then became more easily identifiable and diverse in the Cambrian. So this postcard available from the Smithsonian Institution shows you uh, a conventional interpretation from the 1960s. You have lots of sea pens of various morphologies around. You have these rather UFO-looking structures which are meant to be um, jellyfish. And of course, we now know that those really were more were, are, are sort of interpreted upside down. Things like this, the Stickinsonia, were considered to be annelid worms. Uh, others were considered to be perhaps early representatives of the arthropods. And pretty much everything was considered to be related, however distantly, to groups of animals that are abundant in today's oceans. Then in 1984, a uh, well-known German paleontologist named uh, Dolph Zeilacher from Tübingen uh, decided that, in fact, the emperor had no clothes. He completely reinterpreted all of these structures as being completely unrelated to living animals and, in fact, thought that they represented uh, an extinct experiment in multicellular life on Earth. He named them the Vendobionta, um, conspicuously avoiding the term zoa because he didn't want us to labor under the misapprehension that these could be animals. That view was, was an extreme view, just as, in a sense, the view that all of these could be interpreted rather conventionally was an extreme view. And while there is no true consensus on the interpretation of these, I think that most opinion now, and certainly the opinion that I would subscribe to, would suggest, unlike the extreme Dahl-Seilach review, that A, these are, do represent, for the most part, animals in a conventional phylogenetic sense of that term, that they are specifically related in their level of biological organization to the living Nadaria, and that many of them are, in fact, extinct colonial organisms of organisms whose level of biological complexity was similar to that of, of the living Nadaria. Now, if that's true, then the most abundant ecologically dominant and diverse animals in these early faunas are really quite different from the types of organisms that make up the bulk of the Cambrian explosion. Most of the Cambrian explosion, and in many ways the most diverse animals ever since then, have belonged to this group of different phyla that are bilaterally symmetrical, have complex organ systems, etc. Is there any evidence for those in these Ediopteran faunas? Well, the answer turns out to be yes. Every now and again, 
someone will write a paper in which they espy in some Ediacaran fossil characters which otherwise are known in the arthropods or the mollusks or the annelid worms. This is a good example. In fact, it's one of the more convincing examples, something called Kimberella, which is found. This, this specimen comes from Australia, but one also sees beautiful specimens from the White Sea. And this turns out to be a bilaterally symmetrical organism. It had a flap of mantle-like tissue. It had a, a sort of mass of viscera, if you will. It actually had a muscular foot on which it moved. Now, those of you who are either zoologists or dimly remember a zoology class will know that those are features that today are characteristic of the phylum mollusca. Think of, of a snail, for example. And it's been suggested that these are at least specifically related. They're bilaterally symmetrical organisms specifically related to the snails. Now, although we can argue about that, there are some, I think, unambiguously bilaterian or, or bilaterally symmetrical uh, organisms represented if not in the body fossils of this time period, in the ubiquitous trace fossils, the tracks and trails of organisms from this time. It is very unlikely that tracks and trails like this would be made by anything other than a bilaterally symmetrical, um, fairly complex organism. There's a modest diversity of these that are common in these latest Precambrian Ediacaran rocks. Uh, and all of these things have one thing in common. They are all structurally very simple, and none of them penetrate deeply into sediments. So we have simple organisms that are powering themselves by muscular activity, essentially along bedding planes, but not digging deeply down into the sediments. Now, that all changes when we step over into the Cambrian. And when we get into Cambrian rocks, we start seeing among the trace fossils a much greater diversity of type, much greater diversity of inferred behaviors of, of animals, a much greater tendency of things to burrow down into sediments. This is a type of, of uh, sort of U-shaped uh, burrow of a type that you can still find today formed in beach sands and it goes down about eight or ten inches and those become common in the Cambrian never seen before that. At the same time skeletal fossils become common. Uh, this is actually one of these types of little um, conical fossils that appear right at the beginning of the Cambrian in Siberia and other places a little, uh, uh, actually there's a three-part symmetry if you look at this carefully, uh, just little calcite tubes. I'm not really sure what made them. But in rocks that are a little bit younger, you find fossils that are unambiguously molluscan and a little bit higher than that, the, the, the sort of sine qua non of Cambrian organisms, the trilobite, uh, unequivocally a member of the arthropods. So that, in, in the, the quickest overview, is a, a presse of the types of biology you encounter. 
in the very end of the Precambrian, a unusual, difficult to interpret, but probably in no small part in the Darien uh, set of faunas. And in the Cambrian, we then have this tremendous diversification of various phyla of the uh, of bilaterians. Now, what does that represent in biological terms? Clearly, as Darwin knew at least instinctually or intuitively in the 1800s, it does not represent the origins and earliest evolution of life. Um, as we've talked about before, animals are represent a, an upper twig on the tree of life. Molecular uh, phylogenies infer that the much deeper record of life, of, of evolution, is microbial. And indeed, as we now know, that's what the, the fossil record documents. Do, does the Cambrian explosion then represent the initial evolution of animals as a distinct branch of, of uh, eukaryotic biology? Well, again, the answer is probably not. One of the things we said last night is that our expectation on the basis of evolutionary relationships inferred from um, molecular phylogenies or, or trees of eukaryotic life is that a number of major lineages of eukaryotic biology diverged from one another relatively rapidly, and that that certainly included the group now recognized as animals, so that if green algae were extant a billion years ago, which the fossil record suggests, this group was extant a billion years ago, this group was extant uh, 1,200 million years ago, and there's, there's several uh, biomarker molecules that suggest this group was present 10 or 1,100 million years ago as well, then it makes sense that at least the early immediate ancestors of animals, the earliest single-celled ancestors, differentiated from other groups of eukaryotes on that same time scale. That is hundreds of millions of years before we actually see a flowering in the, in the record. Okay, well, to go the next step in asking what this ge geologically evident event represents biologically, we do have to introduce a term. So my, my apologies to Laura. But the term I'm going to introduce, I'm going to introduce two. One is a stem group, and the other is a crown group. Fairly simple. These are, these are ideas that have really come into phylogeny from paleontology, and they come for a specific reason. This is a portion of the tree of animals. And it suggests something, a set of relationships based on comparative biology. And that is that the phylum, the arthropods, which includes insects and lobsters and horseshoe crabs, things like that, the closest phylum level relative to that is a phylum of tiny little worms called nematodes. Now, that's much we can get from comparative biology. And we can also infer that at some time, there was a last common ancestor of nematodes and arthropods, and that that last common ancestor was a very simple organism that didn't look much like a modern arthropod and probably didn't look much like a modern nematode. 
so that the characteristics that today define nematodes as a group and certainly that define arthropods as a group were assembled through evolution after the two groups diverged from one another. So that if we look at arthropods, for example, all living arthropods have four features. They have jointed appendages or legs. They have a segmented body. They have a chitinous exoskeleton. And they have an outer cuticle, which is molted during growth. Now, it is very unlikely that those four features, and, and many more that I didn't mention, appeared at the same time. But rather, again, they were assembled through evolution and were all in place by the time the last common ancestor of all living arthropods lived. But if you think about it, there were probably organisms that lived at one time that had a molting cuticle, a chitinous exoskeleton, and a segmented body, but had not yet evolved jointed appendages. Those things actually on this kind of tree plot on the branch of the arthropods, but not among living ones. And they don't have all the characters of living arthropods. For that reason, we talk about all those arthropods that are descended from the last common ancestor of living arthropods, the, the, the a group in which all of these major characters were assembled. They're called a crown group. And the extinct earlier branches that have some but not all of the features that the living group has are called a stem group. That's a fairly important thing to bear in mind when thinking about these fossils. And for those of you who've read books like Wonderful Life by Steve Gould, when he talks about extinct phyla and things like this, uh, essentially all of those organisms, those weird wonders, if you will, from the Burgess Shale are most easily thought of as being stem groups related to the arthropods or the mollusks or other living, living phyla. Okay, armed with that then, let's look at the family tree of animals. Uh, here is, since we heard the word coanoflagellate fleetingly in my introduction, uh, the coanoflagellates are the group of protozoa most closely related to the animals. And so everything from here on in is an animal. The first major branch that separates them from other animals are the sponges. Very simple groups. Everything else from here on in has tissues. The first group that splits away here is the nadaria, which we've talked about. Everything else are groups that are bilaterally symmetrical, have three germ layers, so they're sometimes called triploblastic. They have complex organ systems and a host of other characters. So all of these so-called bilaterian animals now are known to fall into three great groups. One of them, which the jargony term is deuterostomes, consists of us and our closest relatives, the starfish. This is not a lecture designed to make you feel terribly good about your ancestry. <laughs> Another great group, which is called the Lophotrochozoa, for some reason, consists of mollusks, that is bivalves and snails and squids, their close relatives, the annelid worms, the flatworms, and an interesting group that consists of the, the probably lesser known brachiopods and some other related 
things. And then there's a third grade group, which consists of the arthropods, the nematodes, and a couple of other groups, all of whose members actually molt an external cuticle. So we can now ask ourselves, in terms of this framework for thinking about biology, where does the Cambrian explosion fall? We know that by the time, by the late Precambrian, when we first start seeing animals, we see nadarians. I didn't talk about it, but there's evidence for sponges as well, not surprisingly. There is evidence that there are at least some bilaterally symmetrical organisms. And indeed, there's evidence that at least some stem groups related to groups like mollusca are already represented the first time we see these animals. If that's true, then much of the branching that separates the major groups of animals into different lineages, if you will, has already taken place. But very little of the assembly of crown group characters has taken place before the Cambrian. Okay, that's why I talked about stems and crowns and insisted on that. So it looks like much of the branching and the earliest relatives of many of the animals we know today had already has its roots in the Precambrian and is present by the first time we really see a record. But the real assembly of arthropods that have all the characters of arthropods and are easily identified, of annelid worms that have all the characters of modern annelid worms, or mollusks that have all the characters of mollusks, that is largely a Cambrian event. So with that then, I'm willing to hazard a guess as to what the Cambrian explosion, what we see in those cliffs along Siberia really records. It records the initial diversification of mostly bilaterian animals with modern body plans, the diversification of crown groups within clades that had already diverged. So it's not so much a splitting event as it is an assembly of characters event. It is also, and this is not a trivial point, the initial assumption by animals of the prominent ecological and biogeochemical roles they play in modern marine ecosystems. So if that's what the Cambrian explosion is, how do we wish to explain it? Well, people have been arguing about this ever since Darwin. And by and large, there are three, perhaps to oversimplify a little bit, there are three general classes of explanation that have been entertained. There's Darwin's favorite, record failure. That is simply, we just don't see a long period of evolution that leads up to the Cambrian explosion. And so therefore, what we might have is a proliferation of fossils rather than a major evolutionary event. I'll come back to that in a second, because I think we can actually reject that. And then those of us who accept the Cambrian diversification as a real evolutionary event have generally been divided into those people who favored intrinsic factors, factors that are intrinsic to the biology of the organisms. That is, explanations rooted in genetics and development and the evolution of key morphologic features, and people who favored extrinsic factors, that is, environmental changes, ecological explanations for this. Now, the curious thing about this debate is that although it has been raging probably for 100 years, 
it is only in the last decade that we actually have enough information assembled about the relevant genetics of development and the relevant environmental circumstances of this evolutionary interval to, to really bring data to bear on the problem. And so what I'd like to do for, for much of this, the rest of this lecture then is really talk about what we have learned both from geology and from molecular biology in the last 10 years that helps to sharpen our sense of what the biological and, and geological drivers may have been. Now, what's new in the record? Now, I'll, I'll at least spend a few minutes talking about what's new in my, my home area of paleontology because quite, quite a lot's happened. And I think the better, as our sense of the record sharpens, it does allow us to reject this idea that somehow conditions only became favorable for the fossilization of animals at the beginning of the Cambrian. Now, you all know, I, I trust, about the most famous touchstone, paleontological touchstone for uh, the interpretation of early animal life, and that's called the Burgess Shale. It, it has achieved an almost iconic status in paleontology, and for good reason. It, it's because in the Burgess Shale, there are remarkably well-preserved animal fossils that reveal details of morphology, character combinations that give us an unprecedentedly good view of some of the early products of the Cambrian explosion. Now, it turns out, however, that however important the Burgess Shale is, the Burgess Shale was deposited about 40 million years after the Cambrian began, and therefore tells us about culminating events in the Cambrian explosion, but not about initiating events. Because of that, it's, because it's come, been very welcome that Burgess Shale-type faunas have now been found in older rocks in several other places, including northern Greenland and southern China, where this uh, beautiful uh, Anacophorin-like fossil comes from. Those fossils are as much as 20 million years older than the Cambrian and tell us that the complexity and anatomical, anatomical complexity and diversity that we see in the Burgess Shale was already present 20 million years earlier. Still, it should be said, 20 million years after the start of the, of the Cambrian, but now bringing this sense of, of complex phylotarian animal organization closer to the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary itself. What a lot of people don't recognize is that one also finds Burgess-type fossil preservation below the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary. And one of the best places is actually in some of the rocks that I introduced last night from southern China in the Dushanto formation. Uh, here's one of my Chinese colleagues rather precariously standing uh, by a, a block of black shale underneath this sort of massive carbonate bed. And these black shales contain compressed organic walled fossils like this. And this is now just about three centimeters long, but beautiful preservation of algae, which you also see in the Burgess Shale. Uh, perhaps some simple animals, but despite 
the preservational circumstances that are identical to those known to give us the complexity of the Burgess Shale, despite the preservation of very, very fine-grained anatomical features in the organisms that we find in here, I mean, almost micron-scale features are preserved, there is not a whiff of Cambrian-style animal above the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary. Now, that turns out to be a theme, because another type of preservation, which has given us some of the most exquisite uh, records of Cambrian animal complexity comes from the preservation of fossils by mineralization with mineral phosphate. And again, as I said last night, we now have beautiful phosphatic fossil deposits in the late Precambrian from China and, and elsewhere. And although they have remarkable preservation, and I'm, I'm still saving the most remarkable instance for later this, this talk, cellular preservation of a variety of different organisms, we do not find any arthropods, we do not find any mollusks, we do not find any of the complex animals that you see in phosphates above the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary. There's one other comparative record we can make. Much of the early record of skeletal animals in the Cambrian comes from carbonate platforms where limestones accumulated in abundance. Well, this is actually a beautifully exposed carbonate platform of late Precambrian age in Namibia, in southwestern um, Africa. And my colleague at MIT, John Grotzinger, has been working on this for some years, and he's very kindly invited us to, to work with him on it. Uh, there are sandstones within this package of beds in Namibia, and where you find them, they're full of canonical Ediochrine-type organisms. But what's more interesting to us is what you find, I think that'll focus up a little bit, when you uh, actually look at the limestones. It turns out that the limestones are full of skeletal fossils. In fact, the abundance and diversity of skeletonized organisms as a sort of proportion of animal diversity was not all that different in Ediochrine times than it is in the Cambrian. You simply have to find a well-preserved carbonate platform to, to find them. Now, what's interesting is that the biology of these early skeletonized organisms is just as problematic as the biology of the canonical Ediochrine organisms. That is, when we look at these shells, they tell us that carbonate biomineralization had already been invented and pretty much perfected by, by animals, but these are not early representatives of the kind of fossil shells that proliferate in the Cambrian. In fact, they appear to be skeletonized variants on the Ediochrine themes of biology, and these essentially don't make it into the Cambrian. So again, when we look at all of these records of exceptional preservation, they confirm that although every opportunity for preservation that gives us our sense of diversity of Cambrian animal life is present in the late Precambrian and is marked by abundant fossils, none of those fossil deposits give us the, the richness of animal structure that we see in the Cambrian. That's really what leads me to believe, actually along with, of course, the trace fossil record, that it is not a failure 
It's not a record failure. It's not that conditions changed at the beginning of the Cambrian to make uh, organisms more easily uh, fossilizable. What really happened was an evolutionary event of the um, assembly of, of body plants. Now, there's one other thing we get from the fossil record. Uh, there are two other things, actually. One is the fact that the Cambrian explosion turns out not to be confined to animals. That is, you can look at the record of marine phytoplankton. This is just a, an algal cyst. And you can see a Cambrian explosion of phytoplankton diversity that uh, parallels the Cambrian explosion of animal diversity. And that tells us something very important. That is, that our ultimate explanation for this has to be an explanation that affects an entire ecosystem and cannot only or purely be couched in genetic events that would change animals. Okay, there's one other thing, very important thing, that has uh, changed in just the last few years, and that is we've been talking in a broad way about, well, the late Precambrian things happen, and then these happen in the early Cambrian and the middle Cambrian. And the plain fact is we didn't have good radiometric constraints on any of these events 10 years ago. And beginning, I'm happy to say, with um, a very lucky find where John Grotziger and I stumbled on a volcanic ash bed that had the good grace to sit right at the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary in, in Siberia and got Sam Bowering at MIT to, to get us a radiometric date on it. Uh, there's now been a cottage industry over the last six or seven years of people finding volcanic rocks at known points in the fossil record getting very precise radiometric dates on them so that now for the first time, we understand the timing of these events. And what we find is that most of the animals that we see in the Ediacaran biota um, are found certainly within the last 20 million years of the Precambrian. The oldest, well-dated, diverse Ediacaran fossils, which come from uh, Newfoundland, about 565 million years. The really diverse and exciting material that comes from Australia and Namibia and uh, northern Russia are actually all younger than 555 million years. So it's at the very end of the Cambrian when we have this initial um, flowering of, of Ediacaran diversity. Well, paleontologists are getting used to that, but the other half of the revision of the time scale is really taking some getting used to. And that is the Burgess Shale, our touchstone for Cambrian diversity, is really up here. It's about 505 million years old. Most of the appearance of crown level groups takes place between 10 and 25 million years after the beginning of the Cambrian. Turns out that you kind of get the feeling sometimes from textbooks that on December 31st, we had a world of the Precambrian. We had a world that was rich in Ediocre and things. And then you got up New Year's Day, and there's trilobites swimming around and all this sort of thing. In fact, that's not true. The first part is true. On December 31st of the Precambrian, the world was still dominated by Ediocreans. They're pretty much gone on January 1st, but they're not immediately replaced by a diverse biota. In fact, when you actually look at good sections where you have time represented well, you see diversity build up slowly 
over a period of roughly 20 million years. And if you say, when do the first crown group bilaterians come in? Well, the first mollusks that I'd be willing to bet my money are really crown group mollusks probably come in between 7 and 10 million years after the Cambrian begins. The first crown group arthropods, anywhere between uh, 10 and 20 million years. The first crown group brachiopods, probably 20 million years. So again, there's plenty of time in the beginning of the Cambrian for the unfurling and indeed the assembly of this diversity. Okay. Now, how then can we evaluate these uh, possible intrinsic and extrinsic drivers? And I'll, I'll try to go this, through this fairly quickly, um, and I'll, I'll leave a lot on the floor, I'm afraid, but I'll be glad to entertain things in questions. From comparative biology, we've gotten a lot of important constraints on this event in the last few years. First of all, there's the constraints of having a increasingly well-substantiated phylogeny to begin with, so that for the first time, really, I think we are getting a, a fairly widely accepted sense of relationships among these various groups. Now, at the same time, there's been a revolution in the molecular genetics of animal development, so that for the first time, people are starting to understand the mechanistic basis of pattern formation in animals. That is, the basis whereby an egg develops through its larval form into an adult with a certain set of characters. That's remarkable because if we know the, the mechanistic basis of pattern formation, then we can start to ask how changes in that molecular cascade can lead to the diversification of animals. And there's increasingly been efforts by a number of, number of labs uh, really around the world to start doing the comparative biology of animal development and comparing different groups across the gamut of, of the uh, animal kingdom. And I'll only show one example of this uh, but it, I think it does speak for uh, what is, is emerging as a fairly general principle, and that is a set of genes called Hox genes, this HOX, which are important in the patterning of essentially the, the uh, anterior-posterior organization of the animal body. People first started working with these genes in, in fruit flies, and in mice, which by some lucky miracle turned out to lie on very different branches of the animal tree. And what they found was that fruit flies and mice each had a very, very similar of Hox gene, set of Hox genes that controlled early embryology of, of anterior-posterior patterning. People have now looked at a variety of different phyla, and what you see here from some recent work of Sean Carroll and his colleagues at Wisconsin is that when you look at at least the different groups of bilaterally symmetric organisms, essentially they all have a fairly large and differentiated set of this gene, these genes. So it isn't that 
sea urchins develop differently from brachiopods or from insects because their genetic toolkit is different. In fact, their genetic toolkit is strikingly similar. And they are different despite those similarities in toolkit. Now, one can sort of go laboriously through this and compare organisms like ourselves and, and other chordates that are in this group called the deuterostomes with these, these other major groups of animals. And by looking at the characters all of these animals have in common, we can actually start to think about what some of the characteristics of the common ancestor of all of these bilaterian animals must have had. For example, all of these animals have a set of related genes that in at least some of them are called Pax genes, which seem to be important in the development of eyes. And there are Pax genes that develop that are important in the sighting and early development of eyes in vertebrates, also in insects. And that's curious because vertebrates and insects probably do not have a common ancestor that even had a complex eye. What does that mean? Well, we think that it, what it might mean is that originally, in the earliest common ancestors of these things, the Pax types genes actually help to regulate the development of not a well-morphologically formed eye, but a fairly simple photoreceptor complex. Also, there's a set of genes that are sometimes called distalis in, in fruit flies and that. And they actually cite places of limb development. But again, even though they cite limb development in arthropods and mice, it's very unlikely that the last common ancestor of arthropods and mice even had what we would functionally call legs. And we now know those same genes uh, code help to locate sort of different outpouchings of various different side types in different animals. And maybe we're just fairly generally used in some sort of outgrowth, a tentacle-like outgrowth in uh, the earliest bilaterians. Well, the same thing is true with seriation. Same thing is true with Hawks cluster and other things. And the bottom line is that probably the last common ancestor of all bilaterally symmetrical organisms, and that's an organism that must have lived well before the beginning of the Cambrian, was already a fairly complex animal that already had a fairly well-developed genetic toolkit for development. If that's true, we can't rely on inventing new classes of, of developmental tools, if you will, to explain Cambrian diversification. Rather, Cambrian diversification, insofar as it's understood uh, in, in these terms, and this is a very nascent understanding, would seem to involve taking a similar toolkit and actually regulating it, having different regulatory genes that cause the tools to be used in different ways with different timing. And this is simply from a paper that Sean Carroll and I wrote uh, earlier this year, which makes a point, largely Sean's, that if you look at all of these related groups of arthropods and their closest relatives, they use the same genes to pattern make their anterior, posterior body plan patterning, but the expression of the genes is different, and the expression of the genes corresponds to the anatomical differences. OK. I'm going to skip over this uh, and get, get to the meat of the matter. 
So we do have, at least it's clear, there are some intrinsic things that are very important to animal evolution. The development of this toolkit is probably necessary for animal evolution for the Cambrian explosion, but it may not be sufficient because the toolkit was in place well before the Cambrian explosion. Might there be any other um, things to worry about? Now, I, I will go back to this last slide, and I'll remind you that the logic of the eukaryotic tree suggests that not only did the earliest ancestors of animals differentiate from other eukaryotes before the Cambrian explosion, they probably did so long before, maybe 400 million years or more before. But we see no record of them. Why don't we see a record of early animal evolution? Well, one reasonable explanation is that the animals were tiny. They were small or gossamer forms that are unlikely to be preserved. Now, we have animals like this today. This is one of my favorite pictures taken by Andreas Teske at Woods Hole. There's two kinds of organisms in this picture. There's animals and bacteria. The big ones here are bacteria. And the squirrely thing at the top is an animal. That's a nematode. But it is only marginally larger than these admittedly large bacteria. So animals can and are sometimes small. Now, if you had asked me a year and a half ago, did I harbor any hopes of actually being able to capture that kind of biology in the fossil record? I would have said, no, of course not. It just it can't be done. You can't preserve soft-bodied microscopic animal records. Fortunately, I have a graduate student who was much smarter than I was. And working in these beds in China, where you have this remarkable um, essentially phosphatization of materials immediately after the death of the organism, he found these fossils, which are interpreted, I think, correctly as an egg and early cleavage stages of an animal embryo. So we now know that in principle, one can preserve microscopic remains of soft-bodied animals. We're not yet able to take this deeper into the record, but at least we now know the circumstances under which we might look for this kind of record. Now, if animals had a long prehistory as microscopic organisms, why would they have become large about 570 million years ago? Well, one of the people have often suggested that maybe some environmental barrier was lifted, and the only environmental barrier that in this regard is oxygen. That is, if oxygen is much lower than today's levels for simple reasons of diffusing into the tissues of a multicellular organism, uh, you simply can't be large. And if you can't be large if your oxygenation is based on diffusion. So it's been suggested for a long time that maybe the reason you first start seeing animals at the end of the Precambrian is that there simply wasn't enough oxygen in the atmosphere to support the metabolic needs of large animals until 600 million years ago. If that's true, remembering last night, we should be able to see a record of that in the carbon isotopic record. We should see uh, an isotopic indication of high rates of organic carbon burial. And guess what? Of course, the highest rates of organic carbon burial on this planet in the last two billion years are 
just the four you see animals. And more recently, uh, Don Canfield in Denmark has looked at the parallel record of sulfur chemistry and independently concludes from the sulfur record that, yes, there is, a re there is an event in which more oxygen is entering the atmosphere and oceans at this time. So we start to have an environmental driver. And there might be other environmental drivers, too, because it turns out that in the late Precambrian, we not only have these remarkable intervals of high carbon isotopes and therefore inferred high organic carbon burial rates and diffusion of oxygen in the atmosphere, but we also have these rather frightening events where the system just uh, drops off, and we actually have some of the lowest carbon isotopic values in carbonates that have been seen uh, in the last few billion years. Now, it turns out that with the exception of this last one that I'll talk about in just a second, all of these are associated with ice ages. And they are rather strong ice ages that may have covered much of the planet. If that's true, they would have been rather deleterious times for biology. And it may be that animals expand only after the last of these for reasons that are large, that are in part at least, related to the episodic traumas of, of uh, global glaciation. I should say as well, the reason I have this photograph of the Earth 750 million years ago is just to point out that the the circumstances by which this concatenation of organic carbon burial and ice ages could take place are those of supercontinent assembly and breakup. Very unusual time in Earth history, uh, but one in which the biological events appear to begin. The cascade that, that results in biological events is ultimately uh, tectonic. There's just a record of some of these glacial beds, and it might be that once the last glacial bed is over, there's enough oxygen, animals start to proliferate, and we don't need anything else to explain the subsequent diversification of animals. But there might be one last event that we should take seriously. I, I mentioned earlier in this lecture that Ediacaran organisms were dominant parts of faunas in this world until the very end of the Precambrian. And this is one of the youngest known Ediacaran fossils from some beds right below the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary in Namibia. These things largely disappear at the boundary. They are never important again. And only in the wake of those do we start to see the unfolding of animal diversity. Now, what makes us think that something interesting might underlie that pattern is there's one last isotopic event seen at the top of that uh, picture. That is right at the stratigraphic breakpoint between faunas in which Ediacarans are important and the beginnings of true Cambrian diversification is the largest negative excursion in ocean carbon isotopes in the last three and a half billion years. I'm not exactly sure why this happens, uh, although there are several potential candidates. What we do know is that whenever we see anything like this in younger rocks, it's associated with mass extinction. So it may be that the proximal driver for the Cambrian explosion is, in fact, um, a mass extinction. 
the, the analogy here that's being made is that in more recent history, in the Mesozoic, we had terrestrial ecosystems in which dinosaurs were dominant, and you had some diversification of stem mammal groups, but mammals don't really radiate uh, as diverse uh, anatomically modern crown groups until you get rid of the dinosaurs. Possibly, at least, the Ediacarans are the dinosaurs of the late Precambrian, that is, especially structurally simple but ecologically uh, efficient organisms that essentially by their removal by mass extinction help to propagate crown uh, group diversification of uh, these animals. So, where does that lead us? This is one of my favorite uh, responsible press clippings uh, on time where they talk about this amazing biological frenzy that we've been trying to explain this evening. What can we then say about the, the Cambrian explosion? Is it due to intrinsic events? Well, yes, in part it is. It, uh, clearly there are ge important genetic events having to do with the assembly and regulation of, of, of morphogenesis in, in animals that play the role. Is it due to extrinsic events? Well, yes, again, it is. It, it, the, the Cambrian, the early evolution of animals is played out in the context of one of the most sweeping intervals of, of change, environmental change, in the history of this planet. This, oops. Oh, okay. Well, nothing that I've said tonight I can be held accountable before. <laughs> the, the point, the real point is that rather than seeing intrinsic and extrinsic events as being alternate, um, interpretations of early animal evolution, I would prefer to see them as being complementary halves of a more interesting picture in which, as I said at the beginning of, of this whole series of lectures, the real evolutionary history of animals appears to be an interplay between biological processes and geological events, an interplay between genetic opportunity or genetic possibility and environmental opportunity which in the Cambrian has been amplified by ecological events to produce the Cambrian explosion. One quick postscript, if you'll permit me. Uh, most of you uh, are, are aware that a few years ago, the responsible press uh, did tell us about a claim that there might be evidence for ancient life on Mars. Now, I'm not going to evaluate that claim, although I, I think, quite honestly, we do not um, today have very strong evidence for, for former biology on Mars. But we know enough about the ancient Martian surface to know that it's not a, a bad question to ask. That as part of the next round of Martian exploration, we really ought to ask these questions. And we are going to be guided by, and in some ways constrained by, what we've learned about the hist early history of life on our own planet. The serious reason I, I point out this picture is that it, it's very difficult for us to think about biological evolution on another planet outside of the framework of our own experience on Earth. But what we really want to ask ourselves, very, the very hard question, is of this evolutionary cavalcade that I've told you about the last three nights, what aspects of that might have been played out on Mars 
or elsewhere, and what aspects of it might simply be the um, particular products of our own planetary history. We don't really know, although it is fair to say that the deeper you go into the phylogenetic tree, the closer you get to the roots of biology on this planet, the more likely you are to find general processes that uh, would be played out on other planets. So with that in mind, we do have, or NASA has, uh, a very well-developed strategy whereby people working on biology of putatively early branching organisms on Earth, those of us who work on ancient rocks on Earth, will in together help to uh, define the strategies and carry out the projects on uh, planetary exploration. Now, what we would like to do is something like this. Um, in fact, what we are going to do is this. This is the prototype rover for the 2003 mission to Mars. Uh, I will actually, by, by sheer good fortune, since I, I did essentially zero planning for this, it, my sheer good fortune is to be a member of the, the rover team. And I guess the way I'll, I'll close this series of lectures is to say that I feel extraordinarily lucky and, and, and delighted to think that having spent the last 20 years trying desperately to understand the history of life on this planet, uh, beginning a few years from now, we'll have the opportunity, perhaps, to start all over again and see what happens somewhere else. Thank you. Thank you very much. And those of you who'd like to ask a question, please will you ask that you wait till the microphone reaches you and keep your hand raised. Yeah, Dr. Noll, you sort of alluded to it, but you didn't specifically mention what role uh, impacts may have had on evolution throughout the Precambrian and into the uh, Cambrian explosion. Would you comment on those? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, one of the things that's really become apparent to most people over the last 20 years is that part of our, of the reality of living in our cosmic neighborhood is impact uh, by meteorites and, and comets. And that although, I mean, th these are happening every day. There are many hundreds of tons of, of extraterrestrial matter that enters the atmosphere every year. But every now and again, it enters in a fairly large chunk, which can be catastrophic. Um, many people believe that at least one of the great mass extinctions uh, in the, the Phanerozoic history of animals, that the one that killed the dinosaurs was at least triggered by impact. Um, many, there are certainly people who believe that all mass extinctions are triggered by impact, although there, there's no real evidence for that. So we know that impact can, in the course of evolution, play a potentially important role by causing catastrophes that remove ecological dominance and therefore allow organisms that were living in the interstices to spread out. 
whether that is certainly a viable option for what happened at the Precambrian-Cambrian boundary, although no one has found a scintilla of evidence directly implicating any sort of extraterrestrial impact. The other place, of course, where impacts could be very important is in the earliest history of life. Uh, one thing we know, or at least think we know, from studies on the moon is that for the first five or six hundred million years of the Earth's existence, the rate at which large impacts came and uh, impacted the Earth was much, much higher than it's been over the last 3.9 billion years. Uh, in fact, it's been estimated that uh, something like a, a impact large enough that you would expect it to sterilize the planet might happen on the order of once every 100 million years during that period. So that might set a constraint on the beginnings of life. It's at least possible that life was fr frustrated. In fact, they call it the impact frustration hypothesis, which I think is great. Uh, they, the idea is that life could have started many times in the earliest history of our planet and been extinguished by um, impact. And one of the most interesting variants on that is that impact could have killed most nascent life on Earth, but only in one set of environments would organisms have survived. And those environments are hydrothermal vents, which might be what actually gives us the impression of a last common ancestor of all life that lived in this environment. That is, it's possible that this is not where life began, but where life actually survived impacts. Have viruses played a significant role in the early evolution of life on the planet? That's a good question, and, and I don't really know the answer. I, I've tended to steer clear of viruses as, a, as sort of a, a, a separate entity in this discussion because, as, as most of you know, viruses are simply lengths of, of nucleic acids with a, a protein coating, and they can only complete their life cycle and replicate using very specifically the machinery of a host organism. So viruses are always tied to, to, to a host. That said, I'm pretty sure viruses play one very important role, and that is um, one of the important ways, not the only way, but a very important way in which genetic material moves from one bacterium to another, and sometimes across great evolutionary distances moved laterally, is by viral uh, infection or, or viral carriage. So I'm sure viruses play a, an important role in genetic recombination within bacteria and, and perhaps to a lesser extent in, in uh, eukaryotes as well. Whether they play a more systematic role in, uh, let's say, killing off a dominant or something like that, I, I just don't know. <clears throat> diversification it comes from uh, same set of tool genes, but uh, being regulated by this regulated gene to yeah. use different tools. Now, um, what regulates this regulation gene? And the second, um, by using this word, I get the impression then nothing's left to chance anymore. Is that a correct? Uh, interpretation? No, not really. Those are, those are both. There are two very good questions in there. One is what regulates the regulators, 
And the second is, is there a role for chance or is it all determinate? Now, I, I will say that, that my friend Laura probably knows much more about this than I do. So when I say something dumb, just sort of kick me. Um, I think it's fair to say that we do not yet know in any great detail the real cascade of um, signals that ends up leading to the differentiation of this group of cells as skin cells, those group of cells as, um, as uh, bone cells or something like this. What we know at the present is at least some genes are involved at some intimate level in the differentiation of specific body parts. So while we know that these Hox genes are crucial to the formation of these individual uh, anterior-posterior body patternings, I think it's fair to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we don't know in any great detail what the cascade of signals is that ends up in the cytoskeleton and, and changes the cells. Is that a fair, fair statement? Yeah. Um, all of these, there's a tendency to think of, of these developmental genes in some ways as genes that build something, that form something. They're sort of like carpenters. But really, I think the correct analogy is that most of them are just middle managers. That is, they get instructions from something else. They pass it on without a great deal of decision making in, in the process. And because of that, because they are really Sort of inf most of these genes are, are, are uh, sort of information barrier bearers rather than builders in some structural sense. Uh, it is a complicated business to really unravel the, 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 the cascade. So the, there's a fair amount of ignorance on the first one. The, the second question, which is a really important one, is to what extent does chance play any role at all, or is it are we living in a determinate world that if uh, we found another world, it would have a biology very, very similar to our own? Uh, there's a lot of disagreement on that, and, and there's a lot of disagreement for the simple reason that the history of life is in many ways unique, and therefore it's very difficult to, um, to know how likely one event is versus another. Certainly, I think chance at some level, at the level of specific morphologies, chance plays, I think, an important role, if only because you get this nice ecosystem developing in which you have Ediocarans as comfortable dominance, and they are removed, and it is by that, in a geological sense, chance removal of those organisms that the survivors are able to have you know, sustain mutations themselves, the product of chance, that um, build new morphologies, which happen to survive. I don't think it's that mutation rates are greater at the beginning of the Cambrian than they are afterward, but the ecology is such that the organisms that are built from these mutations actually survive. They don't, they, they aren't killed off of or, or they're not, they're actually able to thrive in the environment. So I think on both of those levels, chance is important. Um, on the other hand, there are things that have happened repeatedly. Multicellularity has evolved a dozen times in, in, in the eukaryotes. Uh, there are certain chemical motifs at the biochemical level that have happened again and again and again. So my, my guess is that we don't live 
in a, in a random, uh, an evolutionarily random world, the way uh, I think Steve Rule would sometimes uh, uh, like, like to believe. On the other hand, I don't think we live in a completely determinate world where people, which people like Christian to do would like to believe. But rather, we do have this rather interesting interplay of things that are likely to happen because of either ease of accomplishment or um, the, 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 the sort of strength of the, the chemical selection, and specific morphologies that I think are not um, you know, predictable or likely at all. And so, so I, yeah, I think, I think chance still plays a, an important role at, at several different levels. We just talked about yesterday's uh, New York Times carried an article on uh, nitric acid uh, in evolution. You probably, uh, <laughs> you probably read about it. Uh, was, first of all, was it nitric acid or nitrous acid? And second, comments on evolution on nitric or nitric acid. Nitrous oxide, is that right? NO2? Um, I must admit I am no expert on, on that whatsoever, so uh, I don't think I could say anything very intelligent beyond what this is. I, I, I do spot myself as expert on almost everything for nitrous oxide. <laughs> Perhaps our last question down here, as soon as you get a microphone. Uh, perhaps the New York Times is a, a good place to get back to it. As a leading scholar of evolutionary biology, would you share with us any thoughts or opinions you might have? Um, yeah, I, I must admit I was I was rather saddened by that that decision. I, I think at some level it represents uh, in some ways a very clever strategy on, on the part of those who like to remove modern biology from uh, our, our curricula. And that what they did in this case was was not what had been tried in the previous decade in, in Louisiana and Arkansas and some other places which was to say that one has to teach uh, creationist views as um, uh, an equivalent of, of biological views on evolution, but rather said, well, let's drop evolution. Whatsoever. We simply won't. We won't make evolutionary biology the centerpiece of biology. We will not make students uh, responsible for it in their state certification exams. By doing that, we'll discourage it. Uh, less well known, by the way, there's another thing that I think really represents a maturation of thinking of, of the, the, the creationist political movement, and that is they finally realized that their enemies are not only biologists, but they're, ast they're astronomers, astrophysicists, and ultimately physics and chemistry. Because if you believe that the Earth is more than 6,000 years old, if you believe that uh, the universe is 12 billion years old and things are light years away and all of this, then that is as damaging 
to the literal interpretation of genesis as anything that biologists have to say so while biologists have have been seen as the the enemies by by this group i'm glad to say that they've become more ecumenical and now i think anyone science has to be um so they had they they've this rule they didn't talk about it much but of course um astrophysical views of the origin of the universe are also cut out in Kansas. Now, in a sense, it's too bad. In a sense, it's 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 short-lived, I think, because as a political phenomenon, what we have noticed really is that nobody in Kansas really cared very much when the, the school board came up for or board of education came up for election. I can almost guarantee you that when the, there's another election a year from now, uh, there will be a very different composition of the Kansas Board of Education. Uh, that said, it, it still does, there is a, a, a fabric in almost exclusively in American society, it's not I mean, to any great extent uh, an issue in, in Europe or, or uh, most parts of Asia, in, in which there is this, I think, rather unfortunate pitting of religion, or very specific variant of religion, um, against evolutionary biology, and I, I think that's a shame in a way. I, I think that uh, if you're if you're willing to see Genesis as metaphor, there is no particular um, necessary strife between the two. Certainly, evolutionary biology does not require the presence of a god, but it, it, its only requirement is that if there is God, God is great. That God can't be this kind of plumber that the people in Kansas would like to. <laughs> So in that sense, it's a bit, it's a bit saddening that uh, there there is this attempt to, to create an, uh, a a, uh, a a difference, create an animosity between uh, religion and and many aspects of modern science, principally evolutionary biology, and I guess I'll I'll, I'll I'll shut up. The last thing I would say is, is that this is generally perceived, at least within the creationist community, as a debate about science. And and really, I, I don't I don't think it is. I I would have to say, and I I'm not going to get in trouble for saying this, but at the end of the day, it's not good science and bad science. I, I think it's in a lot of ways good theology and bad theology. So uh, with that, I think it was an unfortunate incident. It is not the last of its type. Um, one can only hope that the great majority of people in America who, who don't recognize this conflict, um, that that those people will vote and that clear heads will prevail in, in, the, in the construction of, of curricula. And in that day, at the end of the day, uh, that our young people all over the country at least will be uh, um, enabled to have a full modern education. Thank you. Well, on that note, it's appropriate to notice that none of us are accountable for evolution, and uh, with the exception of the extinction of so many species by anthropogenic events. And I can't resist a short infomercial that there is a course I offer in the spring every other year on the molecular basis for molecular evolution. So thank you very much, Andy, for a three-day remarkable series.